What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Okay, my friends, I am bringing you a bonus series on the podcast specifically targeted toward insights and learnings from the front lines of healthcare during this pandemic COVID-19. First up is my friend Della Tootin. She is a nurse practitioner and co-owner of Celebrate Primary Care. I hope that you find value in her insights and share as you deem necessary. Enjoy. All right. I am so excited to bring you a new series basically called COVID-19 from the front lines. And I'm bringing to you today, my good friend, Della Tootin. She is a nurse practitioner and co-owner of Celebrate Primary Care, which is a direct primary care clinic, well, clinics here now in the North Central Florida area. And I'm just really honored that she took the time out of her day to share some insights. I think we really could learn a lot from those who are really in the trenches. So thanks for being here, Della. Maybe just tell a little bit more about your model of care, and then we'll dive into some questions. Okay. Um, good morning. Thanks for having me, Claudia. Um, so direct primary care, um, our practice is called Celebrate Primary Care, but direct primary care is the model of medicine that is membership-based. Um, people play, pay a low monthly membership fee, um, and then um, we don't take insurance. And we're not against insurance. We want people to have insurance, but we like the direct access models. So when people pay their low monthly membership fee, then they have unlimited access, no co-pays when they come in. Um, we also have a dispensing pharmacy on site, um, and we have a lab um, on site as well. And we've negotiated rates on behalf of our members for um, their meds and labs. And what I really love is that we, um, you know, save people thousands of dollars and. You know, when we started this five years ago, we're coming up on our anniversary. Um, we really thought that we would be serving, you know, a different population than what we did. We thought it would be women, 22, you know, 55. And it's turned out to be, we're serving the business community because a lot of the small businesses, they need us and they love their employees and they want to take care of them. But, you know, insurance rates for small businesses are sometimes unattainable. So this is what we're doing here. And again, it's not a new model of medicine. Um, it's been around since the early 90s out in Washington State. And we followed a model um, that was started um, out in Wichita, Kansas. Um, and we just were really proud to be able to do this. We have six providers now. We have an, an, um, an internal medicine physician. Um, and then we have five nurse practitioners. And then we have um, six other support staff right now. So we have um, a couple of part-time as well. So we're about a staff of 14 to 15 currently taking care of the Gainesville community and greater community. And prior to this, we were, are, and we still are expanding into other areas um, in Florida. So, you know, it's, it's really serving a need for people. It's a really great model. And oftentimes when I talk to my clients about it, it's not, I feel like it's still not out in the open enough, the awareness of this type of a service, it could use so much more awareness. So I'm, I'm glad that we're bringing this up and um, 
it's certainly a good time for people to have this type of a relationship with their provider. So I, I'm really so appreciative that you all have brought that to our area and that it is becoming more popular across the country. So let's just sort of dive into the obvious elephant in the room and talk about COVID-19 from, from your perspective. First, sort of just talking from a very umbrella general view of how does this differ? I think there's a lot of misconceptions that this is just another flu. So this is just influenza C now or you know whatever it's being called. Talk to us a little bit about how it might be different, what you're seeing as far as symptomatology being different, how contagious it is being different, and um, how, how viewing it as just another flu may result in an inappropriate response from, from the general public. Yeah. So I think the problem with this particular virus is that it's new, novel. It, it, we've never seen it before, but the rate of transmission is shocking. And um, we just can't believe the numbers. I think that unfortunately um, in our country, um, there's probably a lot more of it out there right now, but testing isn't done or hasn't been available. And so um, it's interesting, you know, you ask about the flu and I think that the flu has been with us and we've kind of become desensitized to it. And, um, you know, the rate of flu death is still enormous in our country as well. Thousands and thousands of people die every year from it. But I think with this, um, the percentage, the death rate is higher. So the way it is spreading is frightening because we know that the death rate looking at these other countries that have already are going through it, China, Italy, et cetera, um, the rate of death is shocking. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, this is, you know, really dangerous for people that are old, you know, 80 and up, and then the rates change at 70 and up. But what they're finding now in the United States is actually the hospitalizations for people 20 to 54, it's somewhere in the range of, you know, they're taking up like 38% of the hospital admissions at this point. So, you know, it's, it's behaving or appears to be behaving a little bit differently here um, and affecting people um, of all ages. And um, it'll be interesting to see as it rolls out. It's just, again, so unknown and so new here. We're not sure what's happening, but I think that um, it's just been shocking to see the numbers and watching, you know, just the spread throughout the world. I mean, we don't always see this. People go through flu seasons, but this is like, and it's encapsulating us and um, it's terrifying and people need to heed the warnings. Those are the things that I think that people need to listen to is pay attention to the, you know, Florida Department of Health and the CDC and, you know, the recommendations that are coming in. Yes, super important that I think that we try to avoid calling it the flu. I think for a lot of reasons. One is we we have a lot of knowledge on the flu and we don't have a whole lot of knowledge on this. And assuming it's just another strain that we can easily manage is maybe not the right assumption at this point. And maybe we will get to that point where we, we will have more information and have a vaccine. And I know that they're working on that. So I guess since we're sort of segueing into, segueing into that, can we talk a little bit about the unprecedented nature of this from a medical standpoint? So we talked a little bit about this before we even started recording, but you know, from a pharmacy standpoint, when we have a new drug come to market, you know, it's new, it's new to the, the, the mass market, but it's not new to science. We've been studying it, you know, the, the pharmaceutical company that created this 
this substance, this chemical that is now a drug, has been studying this in possibly both animals and, and, the, and humans. And so we have years and large numbers of studies before it comes to the mass market. So something that is this new that we're literally learning and walking day by day. And um, I think it's easy for an, and a desire of the public to want to think that the medical staff is, is knowledgeable about this, but the realities are that we don't have the history, the studies to, to support that knowledge. So kind of talk about that part as far as it goes in, in primary care, but in the medical field in general. Yeah, so I think that the hope is with some of these um, antivirals, um, other drugs that are known to work for certain conditions, that they are hopeful that we can use them to slow or stop the viral replication. And I think that's the problem with this particular virus is that it's so aggressive. And um, so I think that, you know, the hope is that we can slow by using some of these medications, which, you know, aren't even approved yet. So they're, you know, at this time, I think that they're probably going to be uh, reserving a lot of those medications for the people who end up in the ICUs on ventilators and the hospitals, that it's kind of like going to be the last ditch attempt to save people, which is terrifying. But, you know, I think that those medications should be saved in those cases. Um, you know, the problem with a lot of medications being used when we haven't had clinical trials or looked at things is like, we don't know the consequences. We think that it'll do this, but it could have a totally terrible outcome like kidney failure, liver failure. So we, you know, while there's theories behind how these medications may work in, a, in stopping or slowing a viral replication process, um, you know, we have to be cautious and we, you know, I know that people really want to have a solution and answer immediately, like just figure it out, but it's not that simple. And we could risk doing so much harm by, you know, pushing on something that we just don't know the outcomes. And, you know, I know that they are doing this experimental um, vaccine. They've done it in, I believe, 45 people. And, um, you know, the problem with that is that it's fantastic. But again, it's like, we don't know it, those kind of things need to be followed for a year. And that's why they're talking about vaccine not being available for at least a year, because they have to look at how these people are responding. And if there's any, you know, potential side effects that could be devastating that, you know, it would just completely make it invalid um, as an option. So um, I don't know if that's a, a good enough answer, but I think yeah. that there are, you know, there's a lot of rumors right now about meds and, you know, even through um, suppliers that I deal with, um, those medications are gone. And I think that probably a lot of them have been sucked up into the hospitals where they should be, um, because it's kind of like at that point where someone is so critical, it can be used as like a, you know, a last ditch attempt or a mercy, uh, a mercy medication almost to just say, well, we have no other options and this is where we are. So we'll give it a shot. And I think that at those times, sometimes they get special permission from the FDA to move forward and do it as they should, because it's the only option, but you know. Yeah. And I think that that's an important point because, you know, I, there's a lot of news talk about anti-malarial drugs like chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and, and I, and it's, and it can be easy very much like there's hoarding of resources from the supermarket. It can be very easy to just say, okay, let's all get a prescription for hydroxychloroquine and just have it hanging if we need it. But the realities are that there, there would never be enough 
for every single person to take these medications when it's not warranted, let alone when it is warranted. So we will really have to be cognizant of, of and we don't even know the dosing, Claudia. I mean, that's right. the thing. We, you know, in this particular situation, you know, you're we know the drugs out there and we know that there's a theory behind it, but we wouldn't even know how to dose. And that's the problem. But it's not available. You know, I've out of curiosity, I've called some of the pharmacies, I've checked, you know, the different manufacturer and, and resources that I know of, and they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. And really important to point out too, that like you mentioned, these drugs are not without side effects. So, you know, even those people who are taking it for say rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, et cetera, they still have to be monitored closely for side effects. So this is not like taking a Tylenol and it's important to note that and understand that. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about from the front lines of your work for people who don't necessarily know what to do. So we know we're watching the TV and we're in this anxiety, you know, sort of just domino effect. Um, so everybody, the minute they have a symptom is a little bit fearful that this is going to be, is this symptom indicative that I have coronavirus? So let's talk about a few of the symptoms, but then also what should be sort of a self triage approach? Yeah, so yeah. what should somebody do? When should they call their primary care physician? When should they go to the ER? What's sort of the approach that people should follow? Yeah, so this is very good point. So unfortunately, and especially here in Florida, allergy season and the pollen is out of control. So you can go outside and see how much pollen and the thickness and it causes so many symptoms and it can even, you know, allergies can even cause, you know, a low grade fever and people don't realize that, but it can, a low grade fever. So specifically for this virus, um, the things that are the most indicative of COVID-19 is a, a dry cough, shortness of breath and fever. And um, a lot of people are, that have tested positive, that have been tested, don't have any of those symptoms or it's mild. So, you know, a lot of times with allergies, we get, the, we get cough, we get stuffy, we get, you know, ear pressure, nasal sinus pressure, itchy eyes. So that, those are the things that you want to watch out for. Um, you know, the Tylenol has been recommended for these kind of symptoms. And, you know, the theory, it's a theory. Um, and, you know, the it's kind of a technical thing, but the, um, the storm that can occur with replication, if you, you know, are pushing down with the um, anti-inflammatories, it actually can make this, this cascading storm worse with the um, cytokine release. So that's why the recommendation of Tylenol at this point, because it seems to not interfere and, and participate with that issue. So Tylenol, um, it's the recommendation, but one caveat with that. So a lot of people are staying home right now and they're home and they're homeschooling and they're hanging out and they've made it to the grocery store and they may have made it to the wine aisle. And I want people to know you cannot, please do not drink alcohol and take Tylenol. It is so dangerous for your liver. So you'll have a whole different set of problems. But, um, you know, I think that people don't know that. And, you know, I, I posted something about it and it's been shared, you know, quite a few times, which I'm thankful for. Um, but I think, you know, hopefully if people get this, they are not, you know, 80% of people who are going to, you know, end up with this virus will not end up in that scary situation. I think we're overly inundated with images and news reports because it's, you know, the most um, kind of not, uh, it's just sensational. And so we see a lot of that, but I can tell you that, you know, looking at other statistics 
80% of people who develop the symptoms will recover on their own without any inter intervention, which is, you know, what we all want, obviously. So I think that if we can, you know, try to like stay calm and not panic, you know, if you develop any sort of symptoms, you've got to kind of take a look at like, what are my risk factors? Like, have I traveled? Have I been exposed? You know, and obviously, you know, it's, as it grows, I mean, there's more risk of exposure, but I think, um, you know, that's, that's partly some of the reason, you know, there's, they're, they're changing the testing criteria daily, but, um, you know, not everything that happens, um, in this time period is, you've got to look at like the three symptoms. It's a dry cough, it's a fever, and it is shortness of breath. And that's typically what's being reported. So allergies will cause that sore throat and, you know, itchy. So don't freak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're still in flu season. So it doesn't mean that you couldn't still be stricken or, you know, by the, by influenza. So, and I know, you know, obviously the, the fever part goes along with the flu. And so that can get very confusing and how do I know? And you can have both too. And so, you know, if you, if somebody is questioning, like I have, I have a fever, um, I don't have the cough. I'm not really sure. What are you recommending? What are you doing in your practice? Are they, are they call, are they reaching out to you guys talking through the symptoms yeah. and then you decide the next steps? Correct. So typically um, when we have someone who's calling and they have those symptoms that are flu-like, we still have flu tests and we still have strep tests and we have a designated room. We're having people enter um, the back of our building and come in that way and we're still able to rule those things out for them. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, I've had this for, you know, two weeks and I really want, you know, um, Tamiflu, for example. And it's, you know, Tamiflu is something that has to be initiated early on with the flu. Um, so, you know, it just, we are still trying to triage and take care of people appropriately. We are doing a lot of things via telemedicine um, and, you know, and platforms like this and phone calls. And, you know, we're, we're kind of set up um, to be able to handle this kind of situation in general anyway. The major problem that we are having as our other healthcare providers and the hospitals and beyond is a lack of supplies. Um, you know, we ordered the N95 masks two weeks ago and we have not received them. So, you know, we are trying to be very careful about um, reducing risk and exposure to, you know, not only to the public, but to our employees. I mean, you know, we have to be here to be able to take care of people. And um, so we just, you know, that's, that's the thing that's been eye-opening during this whole event is the, you know, lack of coordination, the lack of supplies on the things that people need. And it's worse for the hospitals, you know, it's, um, that's the thing that's the most scary to me. Yeah. So, and that kind of gets us to maybe the final point before we wrap up is what the result of overutilization of medical resources can look like and has looked like in other countries like Italy. So the importance of, I know everybody wants to have an answer to their symptoms right away, um, but the importance yeah. of following the triage process that the individual providers have put into place because we simply can't have everybody in the ERs. We don't have the resources for that. And we're you know, already seeing this happen in epicenters like Washington, but maybe you can just talk a little bit about the, the it's not that the, the you and other providers and other nurse practitioners and other physicians don't want to 
help every patient who wants an answer, but that there really has never been a time where we have used resources to this extent and we simply don't have them in place. Right. So um, I think, you know, as far as showing up to an ER, that is not a good idea. Um, I have a couple of friends that are in the ERs and what they've asked people to do is even call into them sometimes and ask, like, you know, they've set up some lines as the health department as well to kind of give some guidance. Our patients are able to reach out to us directly, but we don't want a situation where people are showing up into an ER and maybe there is one person in that lobby that has the virus and they happen to be sitting in there and then there's a hundred other people sitting in there. They've all of a sudden contaminated all of them, you know, which is not what we want to do because then, you know, that hundred leaves and this is, you know, it, it just is the cascading event and we, we have to stop that. We can't have this. So I think the right thing to do is to, you know, connect, try to reach out, let's discuss symptoms. I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to soon be setting up some of these um, stations that are available for testing like they've done in other states that you've seen, um, Colorado, uh, for example. You know, I, I think that, you know, if we can make the tests more readily available, I think that will calm a lot of fear and anxiety. And But I think just in this situation, uh, you know, people just don't know. And um, it's, you know, honestly, completely understandable that people are afraid. But the thing that's most important right now is to protect your family, to stay in, do the things that they've said. You know, social distancing is a real thing. If you look at the Spanish flu from 1918 and you compare Philadelphia and St. Louis and who social distance in St. Louis, their, their rates and their death rates were so much lower than what happened in Philadelphia. So it really works and it can work if we do it right. Um, you know, limit limit all the things that you can with exposure. You know, I'm telling, you know, my family, you know, when you come in, not that we're even going anywhere now, but you know, keep your shoes up, like don't bring your shoes in your house. So if somebody's gone out to Publix or one of the grocery stores and you're um, walking back in, you know, we know that you have to go get stuff, but take your stuff off out in the garage and protect you, protect yourself. You know, we don't know exactly how long these viruses are living on, you know, or staying alive on our clothes, on our shoes. So, you know, do, do the things. I, I think that so many people are going to have tremendously cleaned, organized houses during this time, but it's the right thing to do to protect each other and protect our parents and, you know, all the, all of us, we want to protect everyone. So we just have to kind of suck it up and stay in and do the things that we've been asked to do because it works. And it's the only thing that we know that works. Yeah, I think it's just a really good and important point to just point out that we are doing these, even though we think, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we're healthy, we don't have any other comorbid conditions, we're, you know, below the age of 80, we think we're okay, it's not, it's not just about us. In the end, it's about us becoming a carrier to others. And so just kind of sort of taking one for the team of the common good. And I appreciate the, the triaging advice. And I think it's important that we don't overextend a medical system that's already in the normal situation without this overextended. And um, we need to keep, we need to keep the staff healthy <laughs> so that they can help those who are in desperate and dire need of acute resources. So thank you so much, Della. Celebrate Primary Care is, is where Della is um, working and uh, as a co-owner. And so if you're in the North Central Florida area and you're interested, you can look that up online. I appreciate your time, Della. 
Claudia, thank you so much. Have a great day. And we are accepting patients and they are still enrolling as we speak every day. So we're here and we want to take care of people. So thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. A huge thank you to Della for joining us today. Despite the chaos that is going on in the healthcare system right now, I appreciate her insights. And I hope you will stay tuned because we will have more healthcare professionals from the front lines to discuss COVID-19. Stay safe, my friends.